Hi, this is Sarah Carson. I'm here on the floor at the AAA conference talking to people about why anthropology matters. I believe that anthropology matters because human existence is not simple. And we have deeply layered ways of expressing what it means to be human, what it means to have a certain subject position. And anthropologists are uniquely situated to disperse that kind of information to the public in a way that the public can understand. Um, and my work is on integrating anthropology into secondary education in order to teach kids um, before they turn 18 about other cultures in order to reduce things like um, racism, anti-immigrant feelings, anti-LGBT feelings, um, and hopefully build a better world in the post-Trump era. I think anthropology matters because it's widely applicable and could make real change. I think anthropology matters because you can use it in almost every aspect since it, in essence, is just the study of people and people are everywhere. Welcome to the eighth and final episode of season one of Anthropological Airwaves. In this episode, we think with our recent AAA meeting about why our work matters. Now, over the course of our five days at the annual meeting, the idea that anthropology matters became a kind of running joke. Time matters. Theory matters. We matter. But I think what also became clear in this particular articulation is that we want to matter more and in publics beyond just our scholarly community. And the question which we've asked over the course of this season is how? How do we produce work that foregrounds the relevance of our field to the many ongoing political debates that we have to be a part of? In this episode, we'll hear from Lawrence Ralph of Harvard University, whose work provides one such response. Ralph asks us to interrogate the overdetermined narratives and images associated with gang violence and provides one ethnographic example of how to create theoretical and sensorial opportunities to challenge our stereotypic, cliched understandings of communities like the South Side of Chicago. In his work, Ralph challenges us to reframe narratives that have been conventionally about violence as injury and dreaming. How might this attention facilitate an ongoing process of healing taking place in communities? What might happen when we take seriously the emotions of those who we work with, anger, aspiration, grief, and madness, for example, not as pathology, but as justified and productive? And with that, I'll pass it over to Lenika Welcome, doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Lenika Welcome, and I'm a third year student at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm here with Dr. Lawrence Ralph. Hey, how's it going? Great. So before I jump into more like specific questions, can you just talk a little bit about like what you're working on and what you've worked on in the past? Sure. Um, My first book was specifically on gang violence in Chicago, but more generally speaking, it's on kind of the concept of injury. It's on violence. It's on how people in under-resourced communities um, cope with injury and violence uh, through the the work that they're doing uh, on a community level. Working in Chicago, 
on gang violence, you join like a really long lineage of scholars who tried to investigate, quote unquote, the ghetto. So how do you negotiate that? Like, how do you differentiate yourself from the work that's come before? Uh, the funny thing about Chicago is that uh, people kind of differentiate you or not through the process of doing ethnographic field work. And that is, since Chicago has such a long history of research and researchers in communities, the people in those communities also have a good sense of uh, what it is that researchers do. And so they ask you, are you going to write, oh, you're going to write a book like this? Are you going to write a book like that? And they kind of position you uh, in a way and, and hold you accountable in a way. And so uh, that was one of the most surprising things that I found going into Chicago and, and living in the community that I lived in was that, you know, people had a really uh, profound sense that their community had been written about before. It had been written about in ways that they didn't like, uh, that it will continue to be written about, but they want to know kind of what ways are you going to tell these stories? What ways are you going to include my voice or not? What ways are you going to characterize my community? And they really had uh, a lot of stakes in that, in those questions. And I think what makes your work really interesting is that then you utilize this concept of injury in this space, right? Which is something that we don't really see coming up in these other ethnographies in spaces that are similar, and especially not when we're talking about poor black communities, right? So I'm really interested in this concept of injury and just can you talk a little bit more about that, why you chose injury and what do you think it's doing for you politically in this work? Yeah, sure. That's a, a great question. So I started um, working in um, anti-violence um, in Chicago before I knew that I was going to actually do an ethnographic project there. And in terms of the way that um, anti-violence is framed, the way that um, uh, the gang problem is framed, it's often framed in terms of uh, the question of violence and the question of uh, gun violence in particular. And so um, dealing with those questions, there was something that uh, never sat well with me in terms of the way that kind of victimhood was described and the way that the perpetrators of violence were described. Both seemed to be overdetermined. What Another thing that surprised me in my research was the kind of prevalence of disability in, in, in terms of just the striking fact that, you know, you see young people in wheelchairs who've been paralyzed as a result of gun violence. And so I wanted to develop a project that kind of saw the world, saw the community, saw the gang through the eyes of someone who had been injured, someone who had been who had acquired her disability. And so that became my first juxtaposition between violence and injury, just the physicality of it. Um, but then when I got into the kind of social conditions that create gun violence, create the context for violence, 
I I thought that just to talk about physical injury wasn't sufficient. And so I developed out of that a concept of social injury, which kind of includes a lot of the history that create the context for violence, but even things like um, how representationally this community was being described. And it, it goes back to your first question in terms of the work that had become before and the popular discourse in the contemporary uh, media about uh, under-resourced community, about the, the question of poverty. And that created a certain kind of injury as well. And so I wanted to trace out these social conditions that create the context for physical injury. And so part of my book dealt with those social injuries and part of the book dealt with the physical injuries uh, like uh, disability, like disease. And um, when I ended up writing the book, I, I, I made the decision to kind of reverse the order in terms of making the social injury come first as the first part of the book and then the physical injuries uh, that manifest from those social conditions as the second part of the book. And that's sort of how I conceived of the project ultimately. But the final thing I'll say about injury is that for me, injury connotes a notion that healing is possible. And so part of what I observed ethnographically was that people might have been subject to violence, but they didn't dwell on their condition and they didn't dwell in the reality of the violence. They didn't sit there. They were constantly doing things, creating programs, thinking about ways that they could manage their injury and thinking about ways that they can conceive of a future life in relation to those injuries. And so the violence didn't seem adequate, but I needed a concept that could account for the ways that people were trying to heal from violence. And that that drew me to the concept of injury as well. And some, I just want to pick up on something you said when you were ending, where you said how people think about future life, right? Because I think the other thing that your book gave us was dreaming, right? And yeah. renegade dreams. So I want you to speak a little bit more about that, because that's really a kind of different way of thinking about how to like defy and resist present conditions. Yeah, I mean, I think um, basically the concept of renegade dreams, as I conceive of it and, and still working, working on it, is that, you know, what strikes me most is just the question of kind of the future, the question of aspirations when it comes to people who are subject to injury in particular. So on the one hand, I was faced with the ethnographic context in which I was developing close relationships with people who were paralyzed. And from an outside perspective, the, the question that one wants to ask are about like how one's hopes might've been dashed, how, you know, how do you cope? How do you imagine life now, what now? And I was struck by the juxtaposition, one in the fact that, you know, people didn't want to, again, dwell on what can be construed as kind of negative aspects of their life. There was a kind of defiant optimism. But on the other hand, there was a really urgent sense of 
I need to imagine a better future, right? And so that was striking to me. But on the other hand, what was also striking was that the effort and the amount of time invested in imagining for a better future were on goals that would seem very modest, that on goals that would, that someone with a middle-class sensibility would take for granted. That is, people were creating programs and networks around trying to get kids to school safely without getting shot. Like, people were creating a lot of time and effort and, and investment in just trying to uh, stop gun violence for one weekend, you know, and people were putting a lot of effort and investment into just trying to not get evicted from their homes. And so I wanted to contrast this idea of dreaming that kind of connotes like the American dream of meritocracy and upward mobility uh, that anyone supposedly can achieve to this kind of stark reality of the fact that some people put in so much hard work, so much effort, lose years from their lives, organizing and planning just to make sure that their kid has a safe route to school. And so these were kind of, you know, dreams that were equally important as anyone's dreams, but I needed a qualifier for them. You know, they were defiant and, you know, in, in terms of, of the fact that they resisted this idea of meritocracy. So for me, they were, were renegade dreams. They were dreams rooted in injury that tried to imagine a way out of injury. Um, and so that became the kind of crux of how I kind of describe the social phenomenon in the book. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? So since the book, where have you taken like this concept of injury? Um, I, I can answer that in, in two ways. One way is that I've written about things that didn't make it into the book, but are from the same context of the community that I call Eastwood in the book. And secondly, I tried to develop a, a kind of more transnational notion of injury that kind of takes into account broader context and in terms of countries and the networks that produce injury, right? So not just the U.S., not just Chicago, but kind of the militarization of policing that allows police officers who are trained in Chicago to then go in and fight on the war in terror and then come back to Chicago. So speaking on the, on the first notion, you know, I presented this AAA on the idea of becoming aggrieved and this is a, a story about gun violence and mental illness that is rooted in the community that I call Eastwood and based on a woman who was a staple of the community uh, named Miss Lana. Even Pastor Scott addressed her in sermon. Mrs. Lana, he said, has got more sense than any of the so-called anti-violence activists I know. 
She doesn't hold a rally and then feel good about herself. She warns everybody every day about the consequences of the bullet. How many in the congregation the pastor wanted to know could claim they did the same? In the paper and in the, the article that the paper I gave was an excerpt of, I try to distinguish between this idea of madness in which someone cannot kind of get over something to the point that they are driven into a psychotic state to the notion of grief, which is seen as something that you can overcome, right? So in kind of the Freudian sense, to grieve for something is a, a temporary state. There's this idea that you might um, understandably grieve a death, but eventually you will get over that grief and maintain a normal life. Whereas someone who is driven mad, um, there's, there's no expectation that they can get over it. And that's why it's seen as um, psychotic or dysfunctional. But I try to develop a concept of madness that doesn't connote a dysfunction or a pathology, but also signals a justifiable anger that people mobilize politically. In other words, um, people respect the woman that I described named Miss Lana because she's mad that her son died, like she's angry, and they perceive that anger as justifiable and they perceive it as something that people shouldn't get over. And that's why they mobilize efforts to help her, and that's why they mobilize efforts to uh, care for her in a way that doesn't strip her of her right to be angry. In the second sense, I'm working on a book that has to do with the history of police torture in Chicago, and it kind of traces the linkages between police officers in Chicago as they develop military careers and bring back their techniques of torture to Chicago. And at times, for a long time, it wasn't recognized as torture in Chicago, even though it was the same techniques that officers had used in Vietnam and later in places like Guantanamo Bay. So part of it is what allows torture to be legible in, in certain places on certain populations and not others. Um, but but the other question is, how do we trace these circulations of injury and these circuits of injury? Um, and so that's kind of two directions that I've tried to take the concept of injury since the book. So before we end, I just want to take it in like a slightly different direction, but something that was also really important in the book and article leading up to the book, right? And it's about shoe game and <laughs> shoe capital. And I feel like before we leave, It'd be nice for the audience to know about your shoe game too, and what you have to, <laughs> what you need to cop. Because we talked all about what people need to cop. So it's like, what what's your shoe? <laughs> uh, what's my shoe? Right now, I'm wearing some black Harachis. I mean, I I like classic shoes. You know, shoes that have stood the test of time, especially in terms of tennis shoes uh, or gym shoes, as they would be in Chicago. But you know. It's an interesting question because, you know, ethnographically speaking, people look at you, right, and they they determine how you're going, they're going to interact with you in relation to, like, a lot of things, how you talk, how you walk, what you wear. And being in Chicago, 
and coming from the University of Chicago and moving into this neighborhood, there was a lot of that, you know, just sizing up on the one hand from the people who I wanted to build relationships with in the community. On the other hand, it was the feeling that like the police didn't know the difference, <laughs> but people did. So that juxtaposition gave a kind of attention to like what people noticed about me, you know? And shoes were one thing that they noticed about me and that they talked about amongst themselves. And, you know, since like the idea of gang violence is so overdetermined, like people talk about it so often. When you're researching it, there is, um, people have canned answers. They have answers that they've said a million times. So they're not interesting because they're not, they're just saying something and saying something that is like really cliche a lot of times. Like, oh, there's no, no role models for these kids. They're growing up in broken homes. Education's bad. That's the reason for gang violence. And so, you know, doing research with gangs and on the question of violence, one has to figure out other ways to talk about the issue and other proxies, like, like what represents gang violence? What are people talking about when they really mean gang violence? And shoes was one thing that like was a proxy for a lot of things in that community. It was a proxy for like the way that generations dealt with each other in the sense that older generations thought that, you know, younger ones only cared about shoes. But it was a way to talk about their anxieties and a way to talk about what they valued and a way to talk about um, the fear of the society, that the community wouldn't reproduce itself. And so, you know, talking about, asking people about their shoes kind of brought back a lot of memories, a lot of what I call nostalgia in the book um, for like how the community once was and how it should be. And I think that's the interesting thing about like our material objects and what they invoke and what they represent and how they kind of entail these multiple layers of meaning that really bring nuance to uh, the social categories that we presume to know about. So I just want to thank you for your time, Dr. Lawrence Ralph, and thank you for talking to us about your work. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks to all of our dedicated listeners for joining us on this journey in season one of Anthropological Airwaves. And I really hope you'll join us again for season two, which should be coming soon enough with brand new interviews with scholars from all over the four fields, engaging with the public and thinking about how we can continue to make anthropology matter. Mm-hmm.